Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. If you and I were to go on a trip together and uh, we were flying somewhere and we get on the plane, we get to our, our aisle you know, of seats and we can choose between the, you, you look at me and you're like, do you want the window seat or do you want the aisle seat? I'm gonna choose the aisle seat every single time. And the reason is because flying kind of freaks me out, to be honest. So uh, it seems like the most unnatural thing for a human to do because uh, you're in a chair five miles in the sky. Like, that makes no sense. You're going 500 miles an hour in a toilet paper tube. Like, that just doesn't make any sense. And, and more than that, it's like somehow in the sky, there's still potholes. You're like, why is it bumpy? Like, I don't get it. And before you come up to me after the service and explain turbulence, all that, I've watched the videos, okay? I've read, I've tried to figure it out. I'm like, maybe if, I, maybe if I know more about turbulence, then it just won't freak me out. No, it freaks me out more. Like, I still don't get it. I don't understand how wind can do that. And so I would choose the aisle seat because uh, on most all flights that I'm on, I spend a lot of the flight watching the flight attendants because I know that if they're still serving drinks, then we're probably, we're probably okay. You know, like, like the, the, an engine could be on fire on this side, a wing could have fallen off, you know, we're bouncing. And if they're still, you know, pouring the Diet Coke for the, then, then we're gonna be fine, like it's fine. If they're not freaking out, then I should be okay. Cause, cause I trust that they know what is and isn't normal. Like I don't, I don't know that super well, intuitively, but they do. So I'm just looking at them going, if they start screaming, then I'll freak out, all right? Because cause here's what's true. Knowing what is normal may not make something easier, but it at least helps me know how to respond when it's happening, right? Like just because I see the flight attendant not freaking out doesn't necessarily make it easier, but it at least helps me know how to respond. And what we have in our passage this morning in John 15, if you have a Bible, you can open to John 15. What we have in our passage is Jesus looking at his disciples just before he's about to go to the cross and he's telling them, hey, here's what is normal if you're gonna be a follower of me. Here's what's normal. And here's what he says. Chapter 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, understand it hated me before it hated you. Here's what's normal. If you're gonna, be, if you're gonna follow me, guys, you're gonna be hated. There was, a, there was an oriental rug shop down the street from where we lived in Chicago, down LaSalle, called Caspian Oriental Rugs. They had beautiful rugs in the window, but you could only go in by appointment. And so, and when you go there, you, uh, the rugs in the windows always had the, the price tags flipped over. So you couldn't see the price. But one day as I'm walking by, I look in the window and one of the tags had somehow gotten like flipped back over. And what I saw on this six by eight Oriental rug was that it's $20,000. <laughs> I was like, nope, never, I'll never afford, I'm not gonna drive, that better be a magic carpet. Like if it's 20 grand, I better be, I better be able to fly that home, you know? But, 
See, what we get with Jesus is Jesus doesn't hide the price. There's no fine print when it comes to following Jesus. He says very explicitly, if you want to follow me, the world will hate you. John will go on to write in 1 John chapter 3. He'll say it again. when He says, do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. Don't be surprised. Like, it, it's, it's the most natural thing in all the world. This, this will be normal. This turbulence that you will experience as a follower of me, totally normal. And so the question that we want to answer this morning as we look at what Jesus says in this text is, isn't just like what is normal, but why will it be normal that if you are a Christian today, that the world will be opposed to you? Why? Two things from this passage as to why the world will hate Christians. First, it's that you possess a new identity. And then the second one will be because you submit to a greater authority. The world will hate you because you possess a new identity and you submit to a greater authority. So firstly, you possess a new identity. Look at verse 19. Here's what Jesus says. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. You see, what Jesus is saying when he says that I have chosen you out of the world is he is saying that I have given you a new citizenship. You are a citizen now of a different country. You are no longer a citizen of the world, but you are a citizen of the kingdom of God. And more than that, you're not just a citizen, but you've actually been adopted into a new family. I've been to several like final adoption hearings in my life. And my favorite part of the whole thing is at the very, very end, if you've been at an adoption hearing, you've seen this, is that the judge, after asking all the questions of family and the kids and all that stuff, the judge will declare over the family and over this newly adopted child their new name. See, if you are a Christian, you have been adopted into the family of God, and you've been given a new name. You've been given a new identity. You've been given a new orienting center of your life that transcends the categories of this world. You see, a Christian is someone who has a totally different way of defining who they are. If you are a Christian, you have a totally different way of defining who you are. What the world will say is that your ultimate identity is your sexuality. That's your ultimate identity. So in order for you to be your true self, what you need to do is you need to both express and indulge your sexual desires. Because if not, then you're not being true to yourself. You're not being your true self because your ultimate identity is your, is your sexual desires. The, the, the world will say that your ultimate identity, not just something that's part of you, not, not just something that's true about you, but that your ultimate identity is your ethnicity. And because your ultimate identity is your ethnicity, then you need to see everything that you do or everything that happens to you through the lens of your skin color. The world will say that your ultimate identity is your position of power or your position of influence or authority. That if you are someone who has influence and authority, that you're in a position of power, that your identity now is that you are ultimately an oppressor. Because how in the world could you be so successful if you haven't trampled on other people along the way? So you're an oppressor that needs to be brought down. But if you're someone who doesn't have a lot of influence, you don't have a lot of authority, then, then 
That must mean that you're automatically a victim of the successful. And so now because that's who you are, you need to tear them down. The world will say that, you, that your ultimate identity is your political party. Are you red or are you blue? And there is no purple. But what Jesus says, what we saw last week, when Jesus says, I am the true vine and you are the branches, when Jesus says that, what he's saying is that I have cut you at your roots. I have cut you at the root of your sexuality. That yes, that, that, is, that is a part of who you are, but that is not what defines who you are, but instead I do. When he says, I am the vine, you are the branches, he's saying, I have cut you at the roots of your ethnicity, that absolutely that the color of your skin and the culture that you're a part of is a beautiful expression of of the diversity of God, but that is not ultimately your ultimate identity, but I am. I've cut you at the roots of your positions of influence and power. I've cut you at the roots of your political parties, that these things are now no longer what define you, but I do. Check this out. Jesus says, I've even cut you at the roots of your past. That what you've done or what's been done to you is no longer what ultimately defines you. But I do. You see, when your identity is in Christ, the world will see you as strange. Because the world doesn't have a category for someone who doesn't fit into its categories. And because you don't fit into its categories, the world will hate that it can now no longer define you. Because Jesus does. So the world will hate you because you possess a new identity. But the world will also hate you because you submit to a greater authority. Look at verse 20. He says, remember the word I spoke to you. A servant is not greater than their master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And here's the part. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. What is Jesus saying here? Now, there's there's a variety of ways to interpret this, but what I think he is doing is I think he's employing the same kind of irony, you could say, that he did in verse 18. Because you can read verse 18 when it says, if the world hates you, Jesus isn't saying if they hate you, like, well, maybe they will, maybe they won't. No, he's saying if the world hates you and they will, know that it's because they hated me. I think what he's doing here in verse 20 is he's saying in the same way, if they kept my word, but they didn't because they don't see me as authoritative. But if they kept my word, then they'll keep yours too, but they won't. Because the word that I've given you, the message of the gospel, they didn't, they didn't receive it from me. So why in the world would they receive it from you? And the reason they didn't receive it from Jesus, the reason why they didn't keep his word is because they didn't recognize his authority. You see, our world is committed to asserting that truth can only come from within. That my truth is my truth, that your truth is your truth, that you need to find your own truth, you need to live your own truth, that it's whatever makes you physically and psychologically comfortable, then that's your truth which is different than maybe somebody else. And so in order for you to live your truth, you need to live according to what makes you physically and psychologically comfortable. 
But Christianity says something totally different. Christianity says that there is a truth outside of us, that there is a truth that doesn't come from within us, but has come from outside of us that has been revealed to us through the person of Jesus Christ, that what is true is Jesus Christ himself. And so now I no longer get to define who I am. And this is why the world will hate you because Christians believe that we don't define ourselves that we aren't ultimately in charge of ourselves. And the world hates that. Who are you to tell me that I'm not my own authority? Who are you to tell me that I'm not my own judge? You see, not only do Christians believe that we aren't our ultimate authority, but that we submit to God as our greatest authority, not only do we believe that, but Christians are also those that say that unless you submit to God's authority in how you approach him and how you are loved by him, unless you submit to that, then you will spend an eternity in a place called hell. Now that is, uh, it makes all the sense in the world why people will think that Christians are stuck up. And here's why. Now, now, in some ways, it, Christians don't, we don't do ourselves any favors because you can just act stuck up and we'll get to that. But one of the reasons is because the world doesn't know the difference between the gospel and religion. And here's how. Is that religion says that in order to be loved by God, in order to be accepted by God, in order to be received by God, that you have to be good enough. You have to be kind enough. You have to be perfect enough. You have to clean yourself up and then God will accept you. That's religion. And so for you to come to someone and say, I am loved by God, in their minds, what they're hearing is I'm better than you. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is not, I have cleaned myself up and now God accepts me. The gospel is that God saw me in my rebellious, dirty, dead state and he's the one that did something about it. He's the one that made me alive in Christ, that it was nothing about who I was that made God accept me, but it was only by sheer grace in everything that Christ has done. That is the gospel. But the world doesn't know the difference between religion and the gospel. And so it makes all the sense in the world why sometimes your unbelieving friends will think that you're holier than thou. Because who are you to say that you're loved by God? Who are you to say that you're accepted by God? That must mean that you think that you're perfect. No. It just means that I have received a free gift of grace from the perfect one. The world hates not getting to define who they are. We hate not being in charge. And we hate that we don't get to control the terms of our relationship with God. That's why Jesus says in verse 22 through 24, check this out. That's why he says this. He says, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now they have no excuse for their sin. The one who hates me also hates my father. If I had not done the works among them that no one else had done, they would not have sinned. Now, 
they have seen and hated both me and my father. Is, is Jesus saying that if he hadn't come into the world, then, then, they would be, then they would be clean, then they would be perfect, then they wouldn't be guilty of sin? No, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that when I came and spoke to them, I revealed, my very presence and teaching revealed the fundamental problem with the human heart. And that fundamental problem is a total rejection of God's authority. They saw me, they heard me, they heard my teachings. And because I was here, it revealed what was already there. Is God get out of my life, I'm in charge. I get to define the terms of this relationship. Christian, the world will hate you. Don't be surprised. The world will hate you because you possess a new identity and because you submit to a greater authority. Now, as far as I can tell, like that, that's just, that's what's normal, okay? As far as I can tell, there are kind of two main ditches that Christians in the Cedar Valley uh, can fall in. I, th I think this is probably true in just like the West as a whole, but we'll just keep it local here at the Cedar Valley. There's like two main ditches that Christians can fall into, knowing that the world will hate us. The, and the first ditch is to be an anonymous Christian. Knowing that the world will hate us, first ditch, well, I'll just be an anonymous Christian. Now, for some of you, you can't stand the idea that someone might not like you. Like, you just, you want to be liked, or you, or you want people to think you're a nice person. You want to be like, you don't want to rock the boat. You know, maybe, maybe it's a temperament thing. Maybe you're a little bit more agreeable. You're just like, I'm just not confrontational. I'm just kind of like easy going, laid back, don't want to rock the boat. Maybe you're very compassionate and empathetic. And you try to like avoid conversations that would make someone else uncomfortable. And you feel like in doing that, you're like serving them, you know? Like, I'm just not gonna hit these topics because ah, they might feel awkward about that. And I don't want them to feel awkward. I don't wanna feel awkward. Like, I just, I just want this to be nice. What you, if that's you, what you probably need to hear this morning is that if you're gonna follow Jesus, then it's inevitable. At some point, someone isn't going to like you. Sorry. It's like, it's like walking into Kinnick Stadium with an Iowa State jersey on and then being surprised when like they're not happy you're there. It's like, well, yeah, because you're not the home team, you know? And so for you, if that's you, kind of the more the anonymous Christian, if it's never the case that anyone anywhere at any time takes offense at what you say or what you believe, if that never happens to you, and I'm not saying be obnoxious, we'll get to that. What I'm saying is, is that it's very possible that you're being too nice. Like you, you are way too concerned about being nice. You're way too concerned about blending in. You're way too concerned 
about, about just kind of like blending into the shadows. It's kind of like a zebra, right? Like as long as I blend in, the lions won't get me. It's very possible, if that's you, that you're actually being a coward. And my guess is that for the average Christian in the Cedar Valley, that this ditch is probably the one with the most people in it. Because we're very Iowa nice, right? Like, like we just want to welcome, you know? Have you had sweet corn yet? Like, we just want people to be happy, you know? But there's another ditch, okay? So that's one ditch that needs to be avoided. But there's also another ditch. You might not be an anonymous Christian. You might actually be an obnoxious Christian. And maybe you'll know that you're an obnoxious Christian is, is, is even by me suggesting that you're obnoxious, you might bristle a little bit. <laughs> you know, like, like, oh, I'm gonna fight you, you know. <laughs> but what I mean by obnoxious Christian an obnoxious Christian is those who are constantly bemoaning the state of our society. Constantly complaining about what's happening in our world. It's the people that like, you, like if you just poke them a little, out comes like all the thought, like religious liberties and freedoms are going down the toilet and like, like separation of church and state. And like, you, you just bump into them a little bit and out spills just this kind of like grumpy, the world's going to hell in a handbasket kind of thing, right? The obnoxious Christian is probably someone who talks more about religious freedom, religious liberty, and rights than they do about the gospel. Now, now don't hear me saying that those things aren't important. But just also keep in mind that, that there are a lot of sociologists who believe that by 2060, China will be a majority Christian country. Now, is that because they have a lot of religious freedom? Which they don't. But that's not my point. My point is, is that there's a kind of obnoxious Christianity that almost seems eager to complain about things. That almost seems eager to be like grumpy about it. And, and if that's you, I just have to ask the question, like what in the Bible ever gave you the idea that it wouldn't be that way? Like, what did you read in here that somehow the state of our world is confusing? Now, that's not to say that if there's injustice somewhere that we, like, that we shouldn't stand up against that, but it is to say, like, we also shouldn't be surprised. Like, is it possible that we American Christians have enjoyed religious freedom for the last 250 years, and because of that, we've actually forgotten that not experiencing suffering because of our faith is actually not the norm over the course of human history. And that there's actually plenty of places in the world where Christianity is flourishing in the midst of persecution and in the midst of hardship. See, Jesus said it in verse 20. 
Remember the word I spoke to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. He said this uh, back when he washed the disciples' feet. Remember, he's like, a servant is not greater than his master. And he's saying, if I am not above this kind of service, then neither are you. And right here, what he's saying is, if I am not above this kind of opposition, this kind of hostility, this kind of suffering, then neither are you. Don't be surprised. See, what's interesting for both ditches, the anonymous Christian or the obnoxious Christian, what's interesting is that both of these approaches actually has the same common, common denominator. And here's what it is. Whether you're an anonymous Christian or an, or an obnoxious Christian, it's very likely that you're being driven by an avoidance of suffering. And here's how that works. For the obnoxious Christian, and maybe some of you are like, stop calling me obnoxious. I'm like, okay, sorry. Like, but if that's you, the way you're avoiding hardship is if I don't fight for my rights now, then it's gonna be harder later to be a Christian. And I don't want it to be more difficult later, so I'm gonna do all this now. I'm gonna make a big deal about all these things now. But at the end of the day, the motivation is to avoid hardship. Whereas for the anonymous Christian, it's more like I want... I don't want to be uncomfortable now. So I'm just not going to say anything. And again, you're just trying to avoid hardship. But friends, if you are in Christ, then opposition is inevitable. It will happen. So because it's inevitable, how should we respond? If the correct response isn't to be anonymous and isn't to be obnoxious, what is the correct response? Well, the Apostle Peter tells us in 1 Peter 4, when he's speaking directly to Christians who are experiencing intense persecution for their faith, here's what he says in 1 Peter 4. He says, Dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you, as if something unusual were happening. This sounds very similar to 1 John 3. Instead, Fight for your rights as a grumpy curmudgeon. <laughs> no. Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. How should we respond as believers in the face of opposition, in the face of hostility? Should we hide in the shadows or should we, should we pick up our pitchforks and go charge? No, rejoice. Christians should be the most joy-filled people in the midst of opposition. Because you're identifying with the sufferings of Christ. And not only that, we should also be the most joy-filled people in the midst of opposition because we know that we're never alone. Look at verse 26. I'm not going to get into this too much and steal Cody's thunder for next week, but verse 26, here's what Jesus immediately goes on to say. When the counselor comes, the one I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. Jesus goes right into reminding them of what he already told them back in chapter 14, that he will send to them a helper, 
the Holy Spirit himself, to live within them. And so when Jesus says, man, check this out. When Jesus says that a, a servant is not greater than his master, what he's saying is like, yeah, because I suffered, you will also suffer. But check this out. The suffering of Jesus is also, is also massively different than the suffering we will experience in one way. And it's that when Jesus suffered, he was totally alone. But when you suffer, you will never be alone. See, when Jesus was opposed, when Jesus experienced the hostility, when Jesus was right on his way to the cross, he's about to get there, all of his friends abandoned him. He stood totally alone. But what Jesus is saying to you, Christian, yes, there will be hostility. People may even hate you. But know this, that though you stand with that though you may stand against your culture, you never stand alone. Because he stood alone, you never will. I mentioned uh, probably, I don't know, maybe a month ago now, um, that, that 2020 was a particularly difficult year when it, come, when it comes to just leadership and leading in the church and all that stuff and with COVID and all that. Uh, in, but back in January, on our way to an elder retreat, so January 2021, like really, I don't know if it was coming out of COVID. Are we still in COVID? I don't know. Like coming out of part, part of the hardships in the midst of it, as we're driving to our elder retreat in January, I was reading a little book by Sinclair Ferguson called In the Year of Our Lord. And what Sinclair Ferguson does in that book is he, he basically takes one person from each century of church history, from the second century all the way to the 20th, and he gives just like a little biography of what was it like for this Christian to live in that century. And I read something that totally filled me with courage. You see, in the second century, there was a guy named Polycarp. And Polycarp was the bishop of the church of Smyrna. And the authorities in Smyrna did not like Polycarp. And here's why. It wasn't that they had a problem with Polycarp that he like, would say that Jesus is Lord. They just had a problem that he wouldn't also say Caesar is Lord. It's a very uh, uh, pluralistic culture, much like our world today. And so because of this, because Polycarp wouldn't bow the knee to Caesar, they arrested him, brought him into the stadium. And as he stands before the proconsul, they are telling him, hey, unless you say that Caesar is Lord, we are going to release wild animals upon you to have you ripped to shreds. To which Polycarp responds in a somewhat snarky way, like basically, uh, I'm not afraid of your lions. You know, that's kind of what he said. And so then they go on to say like, well, since you're not afraid of our wild animals, if you don't say that Caesar is Lord, we will burn you at the stake. And check out what Polycarp says in response to their threat to burn him at the stake. He says this, he says, you threaten me with fire, which burns for an hour and after a little while is extinguished but are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. But why do you tarry? Bring forth what you will. Man, when I read that, 
I, I wanted to like fight someone, you know, I was like, maybe I was being obnoxious or so, I don't know. I was just like, are you in the face of being burned alive? Polycarp knew he didn't stand alone. Bring forth what you will, bring it on, Christian. Though the world stand against you, would you stand there and say, I do not stand alone? Bring forth what you will. Would you say like Polycarp, though I'll be hated and I'll suffer loss for my identification with Christ and his teachings, bring forth what you will. Though my family thinks I'm absolutely crazy for what I believe, bring forth what you will. Though I stand threatened by the fires of criticism, of mockery, of hostility, of slander, bring forth what you will. Because we know that it's better to be opposed by people for a lifetime than it is to be opposed by God for eternity. Bring forth what you will. So Christian, remain in Christ. Stand with Christ. Not as someone who is obnoxious and not as someone who is anonymous, but as someone who is filled with joy as you identify with Christ. Don't be a spineless jellyfish. You know, jellyfish can't move themselves, right? Like they just kind of like go with the current. Don't be a jellyfish. But don't be a pit bull either. We should be the most joyful people in the Cedar Valley as we stand with Christ. Because we know that if God is for us, then who can be against us? Let's pray together. Oh, Holy Spirit, we thank you so, so much for your presence in our lives. That we don't stand alone as we stand with Christ. Oh, would you fill us with courage? Would you fill us with strength? Would you fill us with boldness, a discerning boldness to lovingly and gently, but very clearly communicate the message of the gospel, the life-changing power of Jesus Christ to a watching world who is in darkness and decaying. Oh God, give us this kind of strength and courage. Oh, Jesus, though we will be hated and mocked and opposed, we thank you for taking our greatest opposition, our greatest wrath, for going through our greatest fire so that we can identify with you. Oh, help us by your spirit to stand with you. I pray this in your name. Amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.